Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. We are here. It is the Wonka review. I'm excited to talk about this film. Welcome back to After Credits. Uh, there's a quote from that song that I really enjoy that I never thought about until literally now while putting this this review together, this podcast episode. And it says, if you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. I think that's a great start. That's a great tone to to start us off in this episode. So let's dive into this Wonka review. Now, I've kind of sandwiched this episode, right? So at the beginning, I'm going to keep it on brand. I'm going to keep it on the Wonka tone. And then we'll share some movie news, and then we'll go through the episode and the review of Wonka, and I'll share my thoughts. I will share what worked. I will share what didn't work. However, I'm just thinking back, you know, I like to think back on the last week or the last two weeks, you know, because it's been some time since I recorded my last episode. I know I had um, the Iron Claw review that came out, uh, so I hope that you listen to that. However, I watched that film again, and, you know, I put this in my review. No spoiler here. I'm just going to kind of give you a blanket tone for that movie. Such a good film, but so tragic that it's it's you fighting yourself because you want to see it again, but you don't know if you want to experience the tragedy that comes with it. So a really, really good film and a great way to kind of wrap up the end of the year. I'm not a big New Year's person. I've never really been a big New Year's person. I don't go to parties and like get shit-faced drunk or anything like that. So it was pretty quaint. You know, I went to some friend's house, um, figured out that I think uh, old fashions are my new thing. I think I like those those drinks. I'm trying to move away from super sugary, sugary drinks and and move into kind of expanding my my taste palette, you know, the palette of my taste buds. And I think that's one way to do it. So I had a good break. It was a good holiday break, good break from work. Still saw a ton of movies, and I'll actually share some of them at the end of this film with my recommendations. But let's dive into this episode. So I figured it would be fitting because we're talking about Willy Wonka, and we're talking about chocolate, and we're talking about candy, and we're talking about movies to share my top five favorite movie theater candies. And I want to specify movie theater candies because... In my opinion, I think that if you were to go to the store and buy maybe chocolate or a candy bar, you know, some sort of candy, that that you'd probably buy something different than what you're buying at the movie theater to watch a movie. I just think there's maybe a different brand or a different tone in mind. And so I put together my list, my list of the top five, my top five favorite movie theater candies. But then I also did a little bit of research and I found out the average top five, the average best candies in America for what people enjoy eating when they go to movies. So my list, number five, I have Skittles. I think this is one of the most classic candies out there. I've been eating these ever since I was a kid. Not to mention, I feel like these lists will kind of differ depending on your nostalgia to candy, right? Your nostalgia to what you used to eat growing up as a kid going to the movies. And Skittles weren't really one of them, but Skittles are great. You know, they're small enough. You can pick at it. They last. So really good candy for me. Number five, Skittles. Number four, this is where things start to kind of generate. They kind of change a little bit. Um, I put Haribo Mini Rainbow Frogs. I think these are so good. They're essentially little gummy bears that have the little white cloud on the bottom of them. And you're going to see this, this trend for me. I need things that are small so that I can pick at them one at a time. 
make something last for two to three hours, or if you're watching a, a Martin Scorsese film, three and a half hours. If you're watching a Ridley Scott film, four hours. So I need something to last. So Haribo Mini Rainbow Frogs, very, very good. Number three, this was probably number one for three years for me. I love, love this candy. I put Charleston Chew Rollers. Now, don't associate Charleston Chew with Tootsie Rolls, because I've heard that before, and they're so different. So don't associate those two together. Charleston Chew Rollers are so great, not only in the theater, but very, very good at home while you're watching something on streaming. So number two on my list, possibly the most classical movie theater candy, and I would imagine that this would be on almost everybody's top 10. Maybe not top five, but top 10 best movie theater candies, and this is peanut M&M's. It's not my favorite M&M, so I actually like peanut butter and I like caramel better, but when it comes to movie theater candy, I think peanut M&M's is just almost, it's nearly, nearly outmatched, um, or it outmatches every other candy. Number one on my list, hot take, I know, but I'm a peanut butter fan. I put Reese's Pieces. Now, the question was brought up to me by a friend. Um, she asked, you know, I, or she essentially said, hey, I think Reese's Cups are 10 times better than Reese's Pieces. And I would probably tend to agree unless you're watching a movie, because would I rather have two cups or would I rather have, you know, all these Reese's Pieces that will last me the entire film? So Skittles, Haribo Mini Rainbow Frogs, Charleston Chew Rollers, Peanut M&Ms, and Reese's Pieces. That is my list. Um, try one of them. Try something new. If you've never had Charleston Chew Rollers, get the Tootsie Roll thought process out of your mind and go try it and let me know how much you love it because I know you're not going to hate it. All right. Top five best candies according to you, according to you as a listener, uh, for the most part. Now, number five has got to be maybe the biggest hot take, even bigger, you know, even more of a hot take than what I put on my list, but it's Bunch of Crunch. So little tiny clusters of a crunch bar, which A, I don't know anybody who buys crunch in general, unless it's for Halloween to give away to other kids, um, just like you would with Laffy Taffy and Sweet Tarts and whatnot. But Bunch of Crunch, I've seen these, you know, I've seen them around, but I just never thought anybody would really go out of their way to buy these over so many other candies. Number four on the list is what I believe to be the better uh, licorice, which is Twizzlers. I just think they're they're not as sweet. They're quaint. Um, they also have the Twizzler peels, which those are so, so good. But I just think red vines are really chalky and they're I don't I don't really vibe with those. I don't I don't really, you know, clash. But then again, I'm not buying uh, licorice, you know, on a, any given day. So Twizzlers, number four. Unfortunately, America does not agree with me because red vines are number three. I just want to ask one question. If you're going to buy red vines, do you ever get them in like a, a single pack or like a six, you know, licorice pack? Because everybody who buys red vines, I feel like they only buy the big tubs. You know, if you ever go to somebody's house and like, yeah, I love red vines or they're snacking on red vines, it's always out of that giant tub. They're never eating it out of their own, you know, mini pack or something similar. So two different licorices on here. So I guess licorice is a popular movie theater candy. Uh, number two on this list, cookie dough bites. I've seen these everywhere. I've seen them in probably every movie theater that I go to. I've never tried them. I don't even know what they look like. Like, are these little uh, cookie dough bites that you would see in cookie dough ice cream? I j I'm not sure what to visualize because I can't imagine an entire box 
full of cookie dough bite candies. So number one, which no surprise to me, I don't think it's going to be a surprise to you, that is peanut M&M's, arguably the best movie theater candy in the entire world, and it's it stood the test of time. It is an all-time great, and it's classic, and I think it's really good. So you have Bunch of Crunch, Twizzlers, Red Vines, Cookie Dough Bites, and Peanut M&M's. Whose list is better? I would argue mine is because I don't have Bunch of Crunch on mine, nor do I have Red Vines, but that's my taste. So movie theater candies, try one. Try one that you've never tried. Maybe I'll buy some Bunch of Crunch tonight. I'm going to go see Night Swim, the new horror film by Blumhouse. So who knows? Cookie Dough Bites? They might be calling my name. All right, let's get into some movie news. So Gary Oldman, the man himself. Does anybody know Gary Oldman by name? I'm, I'm curious. You know, I'm sure if you love movies, you probably do. But if you don't love movies, you might know him strictly by face because you definitely know who he is. Gary Oldman says that his performance in Harry Potter was mediocre, even though he portrays Sirius Black, which is one of the franchise's most beloved characters. However, Oldman joined the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, and he said, quote, I think my work is mediocre in it. Maybe if I had read the books, like Alan Rickman, who portrayed Professor Snape, if I had got ahead of the curve, if I had known what's coming, I honestly think I would have played it differently. I don't know about that. I mean, to be honest, I'm not a diehard Potter fan, but I think he's really good. Now, his portrayal or his, uh, I I should say, the way he looks in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, the third film, it's pretty uh, it's pretty hefty. You know, it's a little stretch. He's very different in the fourth and fifth film, but in in the third film, he looks very straggly, very dirty. His teeth are very, you know, mucky, which they did a really good job making him feel a little standoffish. But Oldman has become one of the more trustworthy actors in Hollywood. I mean, he's portrayed different roles such as Commissioner Gordon in the Dark Knight trilogy, of course, Sirius Black in the Harry Potter franchise, Herman Mankiewicz in Mank, Uh, the David Fincher film on Netflix, Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, Dreyfus in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and even Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So he's played a lot of big roles. He's played a lot of supporting roles. He's also just very, you, you always know what you're going to get when it comes to the quality, when it comes to, hey, if there's a movie and Gary Oldman is in that movie, I know what type of performance he's going to give me because he just never half-asses anything. Um, During his recent appearance on the Drew Barrymore show, he did express massive gratitude to the Harry Potter and Dark Knight franchises for saving him, both in his career and in his personal life. Um, I don't have many details to this, but he did mention that during that period of his life, he was going through a divorce and he had his children with him and he was kind of limited on traveling. And so he couldn't really he had to turn down a bunch of different jobs because he couldn't travel when it came to going to Hungary or Budapest or any of these different areas that were popular as film locations at that time. Luckily now, because of those two, he's really branched out. He's been able to do different things. Um, His recent work includes Slow Horses on Apple TV+. It just got renewed for a fifth season. I've never seen this show. I've only heard great things. I hear he's great in it. He definitely looks different. Doesn't look the same as, you know, Commissioner Gordon. Uh, And then he was also in Oppenheimer, where he portrays Harry Truman in kind of a uh, an off-tone comedic performance in his one-on-one with Killian Murphy. That was a really good scene and really off-putting. But yeah, Gary Oldman didn't like his he didn't like his performance in Harry Potter. But I think the rest of the world will disagree. All right, should we get into Wonka? Let's dive into this review now. I will say there will be spoilers 
Like I do with any film that I review, I try my best not to provide spoilers, but you never know. And I'm not going to hold back. At the end of my notes here, I actually did put some things down that will be spoiler-filled. So just a forewarning, there will be spoilers. So the synopsis reads, Armed with nothing but a hat full of dreams, young chocolatier Willy Wonka manages to change the world one delectable bite at a time. I love that even the synopsis is so charming and and childlike in a good way, you know, not like childish, but childlike, where it's just, it's so optimistic. It's very heartwarming. And what do you expect? This film is directed by Paul King, who did Paddington and Paddington 2, both of which I have not seen. I've only heard that Paddington 2 is like the greatest thing known to mankind. So one day I will get to it, I promise. But that's really, when it comes to the other films or other projects that Paul King has done, those two are the most reputable. So now you can add Wonka to that list. This film stars Timothy Chalamet, which, you know, one actor who is from 2017 until 2024 has become literally one of the biggest actors in the entire world that's showing in this film. I think this was a massive test. You had Dune Part 1, which was a big test. Hey, can this young actor lead a massive ensemble, a massive scale, you know, with a great director, which he did. And then this film was, hey, can Timothy Chalamet lead a film, bring in financial success without much other talent, um, I shouldn't say other talent, but other marketable talent that is known for bringing in a lot of money, and he's done that. This is the biggest film of the last month, the last couple of weeks, definitely outweighed every other film during the Christmas box office. So is he a top five actor in 2024, or is he just a really marketable actor? I think that's a question that could kind of fold into itself. You know, I think he's really, really good, at least if I'm talking about my opinion, I think he's on that list. I think he's dependable. I think he's charming. He has a natural expressiveness about him. We'll talk about his performance in this film because he's really good. He's a really, really good actor, and he's just so natural with the way that he composes his emotions and expresses them. Uh, This film also stars Olivia Colman, who, you know, two years ago, and even a year and a half ago, I put her on my top five list of female actors, which she could still land in that arena, but I definitely think she's slipping out, not due to her lack of ability or her her lack of talent, but simply for the fact that she's slipping into more supporting roles. And she does a really good job. She's really, really good and really funny in an off-tone, not-so-funny way in this film, but... She's even, you know, she has a great role in The Bear Season 2 in a very, very small performance, but she's kind of slipping into those those minor roles. So this film also stars Calla Lane, who portrays Noodle, a very pivotal character. This is my first time seeing her. Um, she did a really good job. Very charming, especially her development and her evolution throughout the film from where she starts as a character and where she ends up. Really good progression. And then also Keegan-Michael Key, who... If you need any sort of comedic relief, this is the guy. And I'm just waiting for the day that Jordan Peele puts Keegan-Michael Key in one of his horror films because that just has to happen. Uh, The film is rated PG. It has a runtime of one hour and 56 minutes. So what did I think? Overall thoughts. It took me a while to kind of think about this. I saw the film twice. So now I was able to kind of really mull over my thoughts about what I liked, about what I disliked. And to be honest, I think if you're looking at this from a grand scale of just a film, there is more to like than to dislike, but the film does have its flaws. 
Now, the first question that I asked myself when I went in for the first time was, is this a direct origin story from Gene Wilder's 1971 Willy Wonka? So what I did was I went home, I watched, you know, 1971 Willy Wonka, I went back and I watched, you know, Wonka for a second time. And the answer is yes and no. And so that it's a little confusing, but I jotted down some similarities and also I wrote down some differences. So here are the similarities. Uh, the wardrobe is very similar. Both characters are wearing that purple blazer. They have the top hat. They have the cane that they both excessively use, whether they need it or not. Um, the mannerisms are very similar. You know, the spinning of the cane or walking down the stairs and skipping in reverse or the phrase scratch that reverse it, whereas one of the Wonka characters, I believe it's Gene Wilder, says strike that reverse it. So that's very similar. Uh, the Oompa Loompa whistle is the exact same. Um, the, the only difference is in Wonka... Um, I forgot his name, Lofty, I believe his name is, the Oompa Loompa, played by Hugh Grant. And I didn't even mention Hugh Grant. Yeah, Hugh Grant is in this film. He just wasn't really with the other actors. So one thing that I, I forgot to mention. So Hugh Grant's Willie or Hugh Grant's character, Lofty, the Oompa Loompa, he has his own whistle that starts his song, whereas in the Gene Wilder version in 1971, it's Willy Wonka who has that whistle, which kind of summons the Oompa Loompas. Um, building of machines to minimize this, you know, kind of workflow and kind of speed up a process. I love it in the old film. You see them enter this kind of experiment room, you know, where they're experimenting with the different candies and different chocolates. And you see Willy Wonka throwing in like shoes and throwing in coats and he's mixing it around. And for some weird reason, I still wanted to eat that and I still wanted to to try whatever he was making. And then in this film, you see the same thing. Uh, Wonka is in a situation where he's kind of tasked with a specific job in this this laundry format and he creates this machine with this dog and makes everything make sense. You know, he's helping the dog, but he's helping himself and he's created this machine to do the work for him. So I think that similarity is definitely present. Uh, they both make up a lot of words. You know, we learn why that is in Wonka because it is an origin story. So we learn why they're making up words. Um, a, you know, spoiler, I guess, it's because he, he can't read. He's never learned how to read. So he makes up words as he goes. And then he does that also, you know, as an adult version. Uh, the inside of their factories are the same. You see this at the end of Wonka. They kind of portray this, this CGI digitally animated factory that comes to life. And it's very much, you know, replicable to the original factory that we see when Gene Wilder famously opens the door and you see all the colors and you see the, the the chocolate fountain and the river. And that's probably the most incredible scene as a kid to watch kind of this unveiling of a massive colorful candy factory. Uh, both films are musicals. Um, I believe Timothy Chalamet has seven musical numbers in this film in addition to some other musical numbers by Keegan-Michael Key, also by... Um, by Cal Elaine, you know, who portrays Noodle. So a bunch of different people singing here. Of course, that's the same in the original version. Both films do focus on a struggling boy who's kind of seeking this heartfelt triumph. You know, in the original film, that is Charlie Bucket. And in this film, it is Willy Wonka. Both very, very similar paths. And that part, I think, really worked because in the original film, you're, you're really just, <laughs> you're rooting for this character who does a great job being innocent you know i don't even know if that's acting like he's innocent because he is an innocent character and he's working really hard and that's the same thing with wonka 
as a very optimistic character who doesn't have much, you know, he actually loses all of his money in the beginning of the film. He just has this optimism and this charm to him that just bleeds out support. You know, you want to support him. You want to see him win. You want to see that triumph. So both have that similar focal point. Um, the chocolate and or candy, I guess you could say in the older version, they hold abnormal value. I never noticed this until I watched Wonka where I was like, wow, chocolate plays this massive role in currency. You know, people just ache for chocolate or, you know, in the original one, they ache for chocolate and candy. And so both hold kind of a similar value to money. Uh, Slugworth is considered a direct competitor in both films. In this film, in, in Wonka, the newer film, uh, he's more of a direct villain or antagonist, whereas in the original film, he is an antagonist, and you see um, what happens, and I, you know, I guess, spoiler to 1971, Willy Wonka, but the character who says he is Slugworth actually ends up being Mr. Wilkins, I believe is his name, and he's working for Willy Wonka, and that was all part of the test for the children. So Slugworth, by name, is a villain in both films, and then one little tidbit that I felt was very charming, and I don't know if this was a callback, I imagine it was, but in the new film, in Wonka, actually in the beginning scene, and um, he's traveling from all of his travels. You know, he learns how to make chocolate in so many different ways, and he comes to this, this city that looks like London. They actually never specify what the city is or, or where it is. It might just be a completely made-up city that they've created for the story. But when he comes here, he has 12 coins in his pocket, and toward the end of the musical number, he ends up with one, and he flips it up, and he tries to catch it in his coat, but the coin ends up in this, this storm grate, or this storm drain. And in the original Willy Wonka film, you have Charlie Bucket, who's, you know, very poor, doesn't have any, any money, he works really hard, and he walks by a storm grate, or a storm drain, and he finds a coin lying in that drain, and that's the coin that he picks up, and he uses that to buy the bar that eventually has the golden ticket in it that allows him to go to the factory. So I felt like that was a really cool nugget. I have no idea if that was purposeful. It almost seems too coincidental not to be purposeful. So a lot of similarities. Definitely a lot to make me consider, yes, this is definitely linked to some sort of origin story to the 1971 version. However, here are some differences. So the chocolate in the new film is much less practical and more mystical. So when you watch the intro scene to the 1971 version, it's all about making chocolate. It's actually very appealing. When you watch it, you see them churning the chocolate. It's very rich. It's smooth. You could tell it's creamy and thick. And in this version, the chocolate is kind of just completely made up. It even looks made up. The pieces, you know, they're really cool and they're they're beautiful but it's almost as if you're going to an extreme gourmet shop rather than the, the traditional chocolate that we all kind of in, envision in our minds. So the chocolate's very different. Also the fact that candy is not really a thing in this version. Wonka has no sort of uh, attachment to candy, but rather chocolate. He, he overemphasizes his obsession with chocolate, whereas in the original version, chocolate was just a byproduct of the candy that was all together, right? You had the fizzy drink, you had the, the everlasting gobstopper, you of course had chocolate, but there's so many different varieties of candy and chocolate where in this film it's complete chocolate. Um, the tone is definitely different in both films. 
you know, in, in this version, it's it's light. The tone is light, but it's in a grim, kind of darker scaled world. Whereas in the older version, the tone is a little bit more whimsical, even though the character of Wonka is very dark, <laughs> very weirdly constructed. Um, if you remember watching that film, the boat scene in the factory is such a dark scene that I totally forgot how dark it was until I rewatched it. I mean, you see animals biting off each other's heads and you see them attacking and you see Gene Wilder slowly getting crazier and crazier as he's getting louder and louder. And I think that fits the original story of Willy Wonka probably to a T, you know, if you're if you're going off of the book, whereas in this version, Willy Wonka is completely the opposite. He's such a happy-go-lucky person. Anything that goes wrong is kind of dealt with optimism rather than pessimism. And that just makes him even more likable. Um, less diabolical than the original, you know, in, in line with what I was just saying. It's definitely more of a feel-good story. And funny enough, in the original version, Wonka does speak French and German, whereas in this film, I don't believe he does, even though Timothy Chalamet speaks French fluently. So definitely more similarities than differences. If I were to pick some answer to kind of clarify whether this is a true origin story or not, can I just kind of lean on the Marvel Cinematic Universe and say that this is a variant of the original Willy Wonka? Like, is that possible that I can use that excuse? Um, ultimately, I don't think that this is a, a direct comparison or a direct um, origin story, but rather Paul King is probably just paying a lot of tribute to the original character and also to Gene Wilder and how well he portrayed that character. However, very enjoyable to see those similarities. It was enjoyable to find those little nuggets that kind of attached both films together. This is a year two Wonka film. So it's good to kind of know before you go into this film, because when I thought of an origin story, I thought we were going to kind of see Willy Wonka developing his love for chocolate or developing his reasoning to delving into chocolate or to start his own his own journey toward becoming the chocolatier that he ultimately becomes. However, the beginning, like I mentioned, starts with him just ending his travels where he learned all about chocolate. We don't really get any backstory to his friends or his family life. We get some glimpses with his mom, which is valuable, very, very valuable. You know, it's it's very necessary to the story that's being told, but we don't really get the groundwork. We kind of get the stage two of where he's at. Um, he even has this mini chocolate factory that kind of fits in a suitcase, which is really cool. But, you know, understanding how he developed the skill to create that little chocolate factory or, or where he learned those things, that would have been helpful. I wanted more of an origin story. It's not a terrible thing, but I think going into a, an origin story film, I imagine some people might have felt the same way when they went into the Robert Pattinson Batman film, because that is a year two Batman film that's not an origin story Batman film like Christian Bale or like Michael Keaton even. Um, Michael Keaton barely touches on the origin story. But definitely like all the Batman films that we've seen, they kind of start with him as a kid, him losing his parents, and then him becoming Batman. I wanted that with Wonka. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, this is also a pure children's film. Now, when I say pure children's film, I imagine it's in the same realm as Paddington and Paddington 2. Just very much a feel-good story. Um, even the the dark moments aren't as dark as they seem on paper. The actors and the tone and the the script with the the music around it, it all feels a little bit lighter than what what you you're seeing, right? Like what's happening in the story 
doesn't feel as serious as maybe it should. Um, Paul King, you know, he had a lot to work with. I mean, look, the character of Willy Wonka has been conceptualized through, is it Roald Dahl? I probably said that wrong, but it's the same same stories, you know, same author who inspired so many of Wes Anderson's stories. Um, it's inspired a lot of stories that have been brought to the big screen. But Paul King had a lot to work with because the origin of Willy Wonka has never been unraveled. It's never been dug into. And so having the opportunity to not only create a world, but to create a character and how he develops into maybe a particular character that you can associate with the Johnny Depp or the Gene Wilder version, that was that was kind of his playhouse. He had a lot to do there, so or his playground, I should say. You know, Wonka in this film is completely normal. He's genuinely charming. You know, he's not mystical. He's not diabolical. And, you know, the characters and their reactions and the way that they're expressing themselves, it's dramatically fitting for a children's film. It's a little overdramatic. It's a little over the top. But it's also perfect for that type of tone. If you want kind of a happy film for, you know, two hours rather than dealing with some complexities, which there are complexities, but the tone never wavers. It kind of stays the same. So not a lot of risk. There's definitely a, a lot of conflict, but the risk doesn't really match that. Um, in regards to the production, I, I keep I keep using London as a uh, maybe an explanation to this set that they built. It does look like an early 1900s London, uh, but the set looks really good. Uh, what they did with the architecture and the cars and the little town square that they created, it looks charming and it looks very some you know very immersive with what they're trying to do. But the CGI doesn't really work. That's the one thing you know. Whether it's the chocolate, whether it's them flying, whether it's uh, it just doesn't look appealing. You know, when you watch the original film, and I don't want all of my negativity to sound like a direct comparison to the original film, but the chocolate just looks so appealing in that film. All of the candy. You know, whether they're biting off the gummy the gummy bear ear, or whether they're digging into jellies in the, the chocolate factory, or even Augustus Gloop drinking the chocolate from the, the chocolate fountain or the chocolate river, that all looks appealing. Whereas in this film, the CGI makes it a little bit, I don't know, maybe too fancy for my version. Maybe I wanted some classical, you know, chocolate, some classical, like, show me melted chocolate or show me this... I don't know, maybe some similarities to the traditional world of candy and chocolate. You know, the songs are catchy, but, you know, there's this sort of separation when you record songs in a studio versus when you record them live, or at least if you try to pair the sound live. And that was my only issue. The songs are charming. They're definitely charming. They're very memorable. And I've, I've even played some, you know, just for the hell of it because they're very catchy, especially Pure Imagination and Timothy Chalamet's version of it. But when you see this movie and you're hearing them sing these songs, you can tell that it's distinctively recorded in a studio and then they're kind of overlaying those with the characters in the scene. And that disconnect just kind of throws me off a little bit. So let's talk about Timothy Chalamet as Willy Wonka, right? I mean, biggest, I shouldn't say biggest, but one of the biggest actors in the world right now, just right now, not ever, but at least in 2024, he's probably going to be a an actor that people look at to say, hey, I want you in this film. I want you to lead this project because now he's proven to do it twice in two massive franchises. You have Willy Wonka, which is a big, big character, and you have Paul Atreides, the, the lead character in Dune. 
And he's also done some incredible work that provided that acclaim for him. So, like I mentioned, Chalamet has this natural expressiveness as an actor that works really well with the sentimental arc that this Willy Wonka character is going for, right? Very optimistic, very charming. He deals with the blows very well. He's not weird enough for OG Wonka fans, and we see those glimpses, you know, when he's making chocolate for Noodle, he kind of gets in this world of, like, obsessiveness, and he's like, oh, what do you want? Like, do you want it weird? Do you want it crazy? And I think we wanted to see, I, I say we, I wanted to see a little bit more of that, you know, if he's going to ultimately become this character that ends up killing children, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, seeing a little bit of that ingrained in the roots of the character would have been, it would have been nice. It would have been a little bit more understanding to me. Uh, Timothy is just so likable, right? And that pairs so well with this over-exaggerated, optimistic character um, and his body type works, you know, this is very much kind of a Broadway type performance. There's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of kind of group dancing and, and, and these big productions being put on, whether it's a daydreaming scene or whether it's a montage scene. And his body just moves so well for those moments. You know, he's a little lanky, he's a little skinny and tall, and he just dances so fluid and it works. So it works really well. Um, he definitely excels in the final scene of the film. I mean, like I mentioned, his rendition of pure imagination is just a perfect ending to an emotional film, to a film that does have a very well-constructed arc. You know, whether you like how the pieces fit in that arc, the arc was definitely there, it was present, and his final scene, or that entire sequence, the last, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, that was, that was really well executed. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting to find out is while preparing this film, Tom Holland was the other finalist to portray Wonka. So my question is, would he have done better, right? I mean, Tom Holland does come from a background of theater. You know, he knows how to dance really well. I imagine he knows how to sing really well. He's such a charming actor as we've seen in Spider-Man. Um, and he can also kind of, he can put on a little bit of a dark hat. You know, he can he can throw on a little bit more of a, a mysterious look. Um, I don't personally think that he would have done better than Timothy Chalamet in this type of Wonka role, but my curiosity lines up more with Jeremy Allen White, simply for the fact that he looks so much like Gene Wilder in a younger version that he would have been the perfect actor to kind of plug and play in a young Gene Wilder Willy Wonka. So one thing I want to kind of touch on is this embedded political storyline. Once again, this is a pure children's film and the tone stays that way. But Paul King does experiment with the story, and he, he kind of infuses a lot of these relatable political scenes in the story, right? I mean, the main antagonist group is three competitors, three competitors who are known as the Chocolate Cartel, and they buy off the chief of police with chocolate, which is a great scene, a great musical scene. Their headquarters is located beneath the church, which is accessed through an elevator in the confession booth, not to mention the priest is also paid off in chocolate. And then they openly discuss killing Wonka and even try to send him away on a boat that they plan to explode. So the themes are definitely dark, but crazy enough, even with all of those, which are only a few of kind of the, the dark political moments that happen, it's just never serious. It's never taken seriously. It's never taken overly dramatic. It's kind of just, it's almost theater-like. And I don't know if that makes sense, you know, to have something that's so dark, but not so serious. But they did a good job kind of distinguishing the two and having those relatable themes that somebody could say, oh, 
Like, that's not right. And that is also kind of stereotypical. But at the same time, they don't feel that negative, you know, the negativity or that negative energy that comes with it. So let's talk about the conclusion. Okay, my last point, my last thought here with, with Wonka is the conclusion, which in my opinion is the best part of the entire film. And to give some context, Wonka, and they, they, they kind of elaborate on this, Wonka was inspired by his mom to make chocolate. That's kind of the glimpse that we get of his family life or his grounded nature as a character. And, and you know, we don't see any siblings. We don't see, you know, a father figure in his life. We simply see him and his mom on a boat. And his mom makes this original Wonka bar for him that he that she gives to him because she was really good at making chocolate. That was kind of their dream together was to open a chocolate shop. And so she makes this bar, wraps it up in a cloth, and then puts it in this kind of paper wrapping and draws out the original Wonka logo. And that's what he carries with him throughout the entire film. Because his chase, Wonka's chase, his entire goal is to open up a shop because his mom promised him that she would be there. And she also mentioned that there is a secret ingredient to the chocolate that she makes and she would share that with him when he grew up, when he eventually matured and he became an adult. Now, presumably, they don't they don't say this, but presumably the mom passes away and he's kind of in this illusion that she will come back and see him to provide that secret. Now, at the end of the film, after all the complications that come with the climax of a story, Wonka does end up opening this, this bar. It was a perfect time, right? Everything's kind of settling down everybody's kind of at this point of, you know, triumph and redemption, and Wonka opens up the chocolate bar that he's held on to for so long. Uh, we won't talk about how it lasted through the snow and the water and everything else, but he opens up this, this chocolate bar, and inside there is the original golden ticket. And on the ticket, it says, it's not, it's not the chocolate that matters, it's the people you share it with. And that's the secret, right? So that's the secret ingredient that his mom talked to him about for so long that he thought for some reason she was going to provide in person she was going to tell him about it and so this charming moment starts where he you know breaks up the chocolate bar shares it with his friends who helped him get to this point and then timothy starts singing that rendition of the original pure imagination in such a touching final sequence where he helps noodle wrap up her story in such a monumental way i won't go into details just in case then he ultimately walks to the location that he builds his factory in while this song begins to build and while, you know, the color schemes come together and it, it, it gets really lively. And it was such a good way to wrap up, once again, an emotional film, a feel-good film, a, a childlike film, but this feels very, like, if any OG Wonka fans had qualms with this story, I think this is where they'd be able to find the connection to really enjoy both pieces of it. So, collectively... You know, Wonka was enjoyable. I do think it was better during my second experience. I did give this a rating of three out of five. I would go see it again. I think this is going to become a classic holiday film simply for the fact that it's such a feel-good film. You could watch this by yourself. You could watch this with a partner. You could watch this with your family. And I think it will give you that spirit that you're looking for during those times of the year. Um, my personal Willy Wonka rankings, if I'm ranking the three films... Uh, number one on my list would be the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I would put Wonka too. I, I definitely think it, it has the capability of of being in that realm, and it might age better than I realize. 
And then number three, I have Johnny Depp's version in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So, Wonka, let me know what you thought. If you went to see this film, if you like Timothy Chalamet, if you don't like Timothy Chalamet, I'm curious to hear what you thought about not only his performance, but the story and the world that they created and the things that I even mentioned that I had a little bit of distaste with, whether that was the chocolate, you know, not being as appealing as I wanted it to be, or, you know, if you felt differently about the musical scenes and, and kind of the way it sounded. So Wonka, three out of five. I think a lot of people love this. Obviously, a lot of people are going to this. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie in the world right now. So go watch it in theaters while it's there, because who knows how long it's going to be there. My movie recommendation, as I'm about to send you off, um, I watched a lot of good movies in the last week, um, in the last two weeks. So some of those movies were Poor Things, which I went to, you know, a theater with all my friends, and <laughs> I was the only one who enjoyed this movie. Everybody thought it was it was absolutely crazy. They even told me they thought it was a zero or a one out of five. I give this a four out of five. I thought it was brilliant. I thought Emma Stone was brilliant. I thought Mark Ruffalo was brilliant. That was the best Mark Ruffalo performance I've ever seen. So A Few Good Men, which if you know the the phrase, you can't handle the truth. Um, I, I Obviously, I'm not going to just shout it into the mic like it does. But A Few Good Men, that's a really good film. I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. However, he is so sharp. He's witty. He's quick. And he's very charming in this film. So him opposite Jack Nicholson. You have Demi Moore. That's a good, like, early 2000s, late 90s film. I did rewatch The Batman over New Year's with Robert Pattinson. So as we as we speak about The Batman, there it is. Uh, really, really good film. And then we also watched recently Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. So that's a really good story. In my opinion, the biggest hidden gem of any 2023 film. My choice, though, for these films that I've been watching, I watched a film called Promising Young Woman. This was a film from 2020. I'm sure many people have seen it. However, I never got around to it. This is directed by Emerald Fennell, who also directed Saltburn. And I did see Saltburn before I saw this film, and there was a lot of hype about Emerald Fennell and her film style and her storytelling. And I didn't really understand because I had never seen this film before. But Promising Young Woman stars Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham, along with Alison Brie in a couple scenes. But it's just a very meticulous revenge story that leaves you guessing just as much as it provides the answers that you're looking for. It's extremely rare to be picking up these pieces just as often as people are dropping them in front of you. So you're picking up something you're like, oh, that makes sense. And then you're instantly curious and a little bit confused again. And then you're picking it up and you're like, oh my God, that, okay, that's piecing together. This film just, yeah, it hits you a little bit different. The ending is phenomenal. Absolute powerhouse of an ending. I mean, five Oscar nominations and a win for Best Original Screenplay. I now understand the hype behind Emerald Fennel. So, if you like Saltburn and you haven't seen Promising Young Women, please go watch that. If you like Promising Young Women, I bet you'll like Saltburn. They're very similar. There's a lot of similar tone behind the buildup and what happens, you know, as the story kind of comes together. But I think that's a great choice. You can't really go wrong with any of the films that I did mention from what I watched this past week. Yeah, that is my review for Wonka. I, I just appreciate you guys listening through this review. If you haven't seen Wonka, go see it. If you're going to try a new movie theater candy, please try it because why not? <laughs> why not? But until next time, we will chat later. Peace. <laughs>